Today's scripture comes from the New International Version of Psalm 130. Please stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice, and let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who wait for the morning, more than those who wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself redeems Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. My name is Justin, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. And let me say, whether you're joining us for the first time or the 50th time, you're welcome. Uh, whoever you are, or wherever you're coming from, and wh- whatever you're bringing with you, uh, you're welcome. We've just started a, a new ser- sermon series this month called Strength for the Journey. And uh, because, let's face it, it's not just what we're uh, dealing with that's tiring, a, a global pandemic and heightened racial conflict, desperate economic uncertainty, and a polarized political uh, landscape, as well as deep injustice and inequality uh, all around, it seems. Uh, it's not just what we're dealing with, and, and that's not even mentioning uh, what's going on in your own life, but it's, it's how long uh, we've had to deal with it that's also a part of the challenge, part of the problem that's, that's tiring. And so, during this month, during this month of August, we're camping out in some of the Psalms, the Songbook of the Bible to find sustenance in the source of both rest and resilience for life and faith in these challenging times, and particularly for the work of justice and compassion. Uh, Those are defining hallmarks of the kingdom of God, and they're defining characteristics, therefore, of of those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. That work of justice, it can add another dimension, another degree of weight to the burden that we feel like we're carrying. How do we not grow weary in well-doing when God's vision for our world can seem so far off? How do we not become discouraged when what we wait for, what we hope for, and what we yearn for is so long in coming? It was uh, 12 years ago in March 2008 when God broke my heart and I found my calling. I was sitting at a coffee shop in Pasadena, California. I was reading the words of the prophet Isaiah. Through whom God says, maintain justice. God says, maintain justice and do what is right. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. And later on, after, honestly, after blasting his people for their hypocrisy, for doing religious acts without right action, God says, Is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see them naked to cover them? Then, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Then you shall call and The Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. 
That was the day I knew in my soul that I could not call myself a Christian. I could not call myself a follower of Jesus and not be about the work of justice. That's what the Holy Spirit laid on me then, and that's what the Holy Spirit continues to lay on me. And it's, it's not a, a burden, although it, it, there are days when it is tiring, uh, exhausting even. It has, it has been, and it continues to be, an invitation to life, to God's life. And that life is not just for you or me, it's for all of us. It's liberation, it's redemption, it's restoration, it's salvation. And yet many of the things that God has stirred my heart for are still to be realized. They're still uh, not in our grasp. We still haven't found it. We need only to look around to see how true that is. And so what do we do when we're waiting and we're waiting and what we're waiting for, it seems so far off or even unreachable, especially in the journey of justice, of seeing God's kingdom on earth where no one is in need and every child has a home and every person is fed and clothed and cared for and there are no more shootings. Just reading this morning about another shooting, just, just this morning, 20 people were, 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 were hit. Where we deal justly with one another, that's the world that God longs for. We care for each other, and our systems and our structures, they support and encourage that kind of righteousness. John Lewis, the great statesman and civil rights activist who passed away just a few weeks ago, was well known, actually, for his hope and his joy and his determination. His life is a demonstration of a, of a life, uh, of a long obedience in the same direction. Committed because of his deep faith to the work of civil rights. Here was a man who was beaten and spat on and arrested multiple times and, and more. Who continued to fight the good fight for decades, even in the face of setbacks and challenges. And through it all, he somehow maintained an irresistible joy and an indomitable hope. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul, actually, who wrote many of his letters about, about the, the, the peace and the joy of God that he was participating in, even as he was writing as a, as a prisoner of the state, writing from prison, a survivor of multiple beatings, stonings, and shipwrecks. Today, as we consider what to do with the weight we're going to be looking at Psalm 130. And I want us to learn from some more recent spiritual ancestors as well. Folks like John Lewis and other civil rights activists. Barbara Holmes is a scholar and a spiritual teacher who wrote a book called Joy Unspeakable. Contemplative Practices of the Black Church. And in that book she notes how the freedom movements of days past had at their core contemplative practices, ways for activists to engage their spirits. that grounded them in a reality that enabled them to practice nonviolent resistance and social protest as they did with persistence, perseverance, and resilience. Persistence, perseverance, and resilience that allowed them to stand in the face of adversity. It reminds me of something that the Apostle Paul wrote. Love isn't happy with injustice, but it is happy with truth. Love puts up with all things. Love trusts in all things, hopes 
for all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Persistent, persevering, and resilient in the face of adversity. That's what I want my love for God and my love for others to be like. But let's start with Psalm 130. All right, to give a, a little background, it's, it's right in the middle of a group of psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 that are called the Songs of Ascent. Songs of Ascent. And they're called the Songs of Ascent because they're the hymns that would have been sung by Jewish pilgrims on the road up to Jerusalem for one of the seasonal festivals. Uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Three times a year, pilgrims would, would go to Jerusalem and they'd go up, up to Jerusalem and they'd be singing these songs. These are quite literally songs for the journey. They're songs for those who are on the way. They are songs for the in-between, for those who have left where they once were but haven't arrived yet where they want to be. These are songs of transition. Songs for those who walk by faith. Songs for the living. Songs for our lives. Songs for the journey of justice. This is how Psalm 130 begins. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. From the depths, from the pit, the psalmist cries out to God. Now picture that in your mind, crying out to the Lord on high from the deepest pit, the deepest hole. But, but theologian Walter Brueggemann he describes this location as, as, as figurative and as metaphorical, and this is how he describes it. He describes it as a place of undifferentiated, powerless, gray existence where one is removed from joy and discourse with God. Where one is in the pit, when one is in the pit, one cannot believe or imagine that good can come again. Let me read that again. The depths are a place of undifferentiated, powerless gray existence where one is removed from joy and discourse with God. When one is in the pit, one cannot believe or imagine that good can come again. I know for many of us that, that strikes a little close to home. And how would you define your depths, your pit? What is the undifferentiated, powerless gray existence from which you may be crying out to the Lord? Around what are you finding it hard to believe or imagine that good can come? Is it COVID or racism or economic inequality or state-sponsored violence or all of the above? Are you in the depths about politics in America or the Christian church in America or even about this church? Maybe it's a relationship or lack thereof. Maybe it's family or friends or work. What are your depths? The things around you? But let me invite you also to name your internal reality too. To bring yourself to the situation. Not just the things that are outside of you that are weighing on you, but the things that are inside of you that are weighing on you. What are the things within you that you feel powerless over? Depression and anxiety or Loss and grief, sin and brokenness, cycles and habits that keep you from, from living fully into the freedom of God. What are your depths? 
The first practice we learn from the psalmist in, in, this, in this distress is to name reality. To name reality. To name our reality. What we're feeling, where we're at, what we believe and where we doubt, where we're suffering. Pastor and author Eugene Peterson wrote, By setting the anguish out in the open and voicing it as prayer, the psalm gives dignity to our suffering. It does not look on suffering as something slightly embarrassing which must be hushed up and locked in a closet where it finally becomes a skeleton because this sort of thing shouldn't happen to a a real person of faith. Suffering is set squarely, openly, passionately before God. It's set before God. You see, naming reality, it must involve naming our reality in the presence of the ultimate reality, God, the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth who is nearer to you right now than the air you are breathing into your lungs. Naming our reality in the presence of the ultimate reality. The psalmist continues, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. The psalmist cries out for mercy to God because the psalmist knows that this God is a God of mercy, a God who forgives, a God who offers grace and restoration, a God who hears even the cries from the deepest depths. By naming our reality to God, we're praying our suffering. And in praying our suffering, we immerse ourselves in the reality of God. A reality that is deeper than our depths. A reality whose grace stretches the boundaries of our inclusion, whose justice challenges the pettiness of our judgmentalism, whose desire and will for creation and all of us within it far outstretches anything we could possibly ask or imagine. Scottish theologian, uh, 19th century Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth said, God is deeper than the deepest depth in humankind. He is holier than our deepest sin is deep. There is no depth so deep to us as when God reveals His holiness in dealing with our sin. And so think more of the depth of God than the depth of your cry. Think more of the depth of God than the depth of your cry. The worst thing that can happen to someone is to have no God to cry to out of the depth. In another psalm, Psalm 139, it says, If if I go down to the depths, even there, Lord, you are there. In the words of Martin Luther King, there is a higher reality, and we might say a deeper reality, a wider reality a truer reality at the heart of our universe to which we must be conformed, God and his kingdom of love. Dr. King was determined and resolute in the face of earthly opposition because he was motivated and compelled by a heavenly vision. Whatever depths we may find ourselves in, we ground ourselves in reality, ours and God's, ours in God's, to be more precise. The psalmist continues, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. 
and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I wait and I hope. My whole being, some translations say my soul waits for the Lord. And I put my hope in God's word. So we wait and we hope. All right, first we wait. And in case you, you missed it, the psalmist uses the word wait five times in two verses. Now, I don't think I've met anyone who uh, loves waiting. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're all in the same boat here. Whether that's waiting in traffic or at the grocery store, at the bank, or you know, waiting for a, a bus or a train or a cab in the rain. You know, waiting to be able to be together again. right? To hug and shake hands, to have parties that aren't just virtual, to have, man, to have community lunch without worrying about COVID. But there's also waiting of, you know, family and friends for a loved one's test results. There's the waiting of a person stuck in a difficult or unfulfilling job or job search. Waiting of a couple for a child who still hasn't come. Waiting of a single person for a partner who still hasn't come. Waiting of a heart to heal after another disappointing relationship or waiting for the pain of the past, or the change of the past to go away. Then there's the waiting for God's kingdom to come in, in all its fullness. For all of the things that make up your depths to no longer cause you heartache. For God's will to be done. For justice to roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream in the words of the prophet Amos. For the proud and mighty to be brought down and the humble to be lifted up high as as Jesus' mother Mary sang. What did the psalmist mean to, to wait for the Lord? When we think of waiting, there's, there's often a very passive quality to it, right? We're, we're, we're standing around or we're sitting around doing nothing. We're bored. And so maybe you, you pull out your phone and pass the time or whatever you do when, you, when, you, when you're waiting for something. But the Hebrew word for wait, it means to look for with eager expectation. That's, what, that's what's going on here. When the psalmist says, wait for the Lord, he's saying, look for the Lord with eager expectation. We look for where God is at work, and we look forward with anticipation to what God has promised God will do. Our souls tuned in and ready. Our entire being focused on what God is about to do and Perhaps what God is doing already. Now friends, we must remember that we are integrated beings. Our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our spirits, all of us are interconnected. Uh, every part affects every other part. Uh, yesterday I ate something that, that really didn't agree with me. And so the, the whole rest of the day I felt out of it and just unable to engage emotionally, spiritually, physically, anything. I was just out for the day. You know, if, if you're spending seven plus hours looking at a screen, that affects you emotionally, affects you relationally. If you're exhausted, it affects how you interact with people around you, the people that you come into contact with. And when we overload our brains with information, much of it tragic and much of it out of our control, it affects our spirituality. It focuses oftentimes 
Not that we shouldn't be aware of things, but when we get oversaturated with that, it focuses our energies on the depths and rather than the God of the rescue. Rather than the God in whom we hope. And so, so what would it look like for you? What would it look like for you to engage your whole being, your soul, in waiting for the Lord, in looking expectantly, eagerly for the Lord? What needs to be uh, pruned from your life or, or removed from your life or what boundaries need to be drawn so that you can be more present to the reality of God? Maybe it's, maybe it's limiting the amount of time you spend on social media. That's one for me, for sure. Uh, I can get so caught up in, in the news and, and, and I, j- I just want to be up to date with what's happening here and what's happening back where I grew up in Hong Kong. But when I disconnect my reality from God's reality, from, from when, when I neglect the sitting still and the being with God and the contemplation and the meditation and the centering on God and God's truth and, and God's kingdom, it's so easy for me to be discouraged and hopeless. And this is where, if you didn't get a chance to, to, to listen to it, you should go back and, and check out Matthew's message from last week. There is a reason we started this series in Psalm 46 where God says, Be still and know that I am God. Family, there will come a day, there will come a day, when in the words of the 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. There will be no more death or sorrow or pain and there will be no more poverty or homelessness or exploitation or abuse and there will be no more microaggressions or racism or white supremacy and there will be no more weapons of any kind of destruction and no more billionaires while millions go hungry. The old order of things will pass away. That is the word of the Lord. And the psalmist says, in his word I put my hope. In his word I put my hope. To hope in God's word is to put our trust in what God says. To trust that God will do what God says he will do. But putting our trust in what God says also means that we trust when God has already told us to do something, God means that too. There's, there's a few things that God's already told us. Love, your, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. As Nara reminded us, care for the hungry, the needy, the homeless, the immigrant, the poor, the imprisoned, and the sick. So far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do not use your freedom for yourselves alone. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We wait and we hope. And as Eugene Peterson says, waiting does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, 
confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hope is not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion of fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. In one of his final interviews before he died, John Lewis was asked the question, what do you do to keep from becoming bitter? Over the decades of the struggle, what do you do to keep from becoming bitter? And this was his response. He said, I pray over and over again. I have what I call an executive session with myself. Just self-listen. This is what you must do. This is what you must say. Do what you can and play the role that you can play. Do what you can and play the role that you can play. That's faithfulness. That's faithfulness. Psalm 130 closes with this. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with God is full redemption. God will redeem Israel from all their sins. Trust in the one to whom you can call even, on, even when you're in the deepest depths. For God is still God in your depths. And trust and hope in the one whose love never fails and whose redemption is absolute and comprehensive. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would have sung those words on the road up to Jerusalem as they sang the songs of ascent. And they would have done it all, and here's the, here's the third key. They would have done it all together. Together. We must not miss this. Here at the end of the psalm, it pivots from the individual to the communal. There's a shift from this is where I am and this is where, what I'm feeling and this is what I'm going through to this is what we should do because this is what God will do. We do all of this together. We do not do this alone. We cannot do this alone. We weren't made to do this alone. Whether it's the shadows of our internal depths or the darkness that has calcified into systems and structures of oppression, we cannot overcome on our own. We do it together with each other and most importantly with the Spirit of God. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're waiting for, whatever is stretching you past what you think you can handle, do not do it alone. Reach out. Reach out to God in prayer. Reach out to those around you. Ask for help. And reach out and offer help. Who knows but that God puts someone on your heart so that you could journey with them. Waiting on God's justice is not passive. Waiting in the Bible is not passive. It's not sitting around twiddling our thumbs. It is naming reality, ours and God's. It is what watching as those who are on guard wait for the morning. Alert and aware, looking and listening for signs of the divine, for the leading of the Spirit, for the challenge and conviction of God. It's, it's watching and it's hoping. 
trusting, leaning on the words of God, leaning into the truths of God. Ever and always being faithful in our love for God and for those He has given us to care for. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, even enemies. And it is doing it all together. One body, one family. One of the things I learned from Barbara Holmes' book, uh, Joy Unspeakable, is that uh, in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision, which desegregated schools as, as black children were being escorted into their new schools, flanked by National Guardsmen, she writes, the song, Jesus Loves Me, became an anthem of faith in the face of contradictory evidence. You cannot face German shepherds and fire hoses with your own resources. There must be God and stillness at the very center of your being. Otherwise, you will spiral into the violence that threatens you. To close our time in, in the face of all that we're dealing with right now, both inside and outside of ourselves, so much of which feels out of control, maybe we can sing another song together. An African-American spiritual, another anthem of faith birthed in the face of contradictory evidence. You probably know it. Maybe you can sing along with me. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Sing it again. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 You can sing as many verses as you want to sing. As many as you need to sing right now. Whatever you're having trouble remembering is in the hands of the Lord. Sing that this week. Sing that today. May our love grow more and more like the love of Jesus, persistent, persevering, and resilient. For the sake of God's kingdom here on earth, here in D.C., and here in our midst. Amen.